This is Chapter 60 of Following the Equator. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Following the Equator by Mark Twain. Chapter 60. To Lahore. The Governor's Elephant. Taking a Ride. No Danger from Collision. Rawalpindi. Back to Delhi. An Orientalized Englishman. Monkeys and the Paint Pot. Monkey Crying Over My Notebook. Arrival at Jaipur in Rajputana, watching servants, the Jaipur Hotel, our old and new Satan, Satan as a liar, the museum, a street show, blocks of houses, a religious procession. Satan, impatiently, to newcomer. The trouble with you Chicago people is that you think you are the best people down here, whereas you are merely the most numerous. Pudenhead Wilson's New Calendar. We wandered contentedly around here and there in India, to Lahore, among other places, where the lieutenant governor lent me an elephant. This hospitality stands out in my experiences in a stately isolation. It was a fine elephant, affable, gentlemanly, educated, and I was not afraid of it. I even rode it with confidence through the crowded lanes of the native city, where it scared all the horses out of their senses, and where children were always just escaping its feet. It took the middle of the road in a fine, independent way, and left it to the world to get out of the way or take the consequences. I am used to being afraid of collisions when I ride or drive, but when one is on top of an elephant, that feeling is absent. I could have ridden in comfort through a regiment of runaway teams, I could easily learn to prefer an elephant to any other vehicle, partly because of that immunity from collisions, and partly because of the fine view one has from up there, and partly because of the dignity one feels in that high place, and partly because one can look in at the windows and see what is going on privately among the family. The Lahore horses were used to elephants, but they were rapturously afraid of them just the same. It seemed curious. Perhaps the better they know the elephant, the more they respect him in that peculiar way. In our own case, we are not afraid of dynamite till we get acquainted with it. We drifted as far as Rawalpindi, away up on the Afghan frontier. I think it was the Afghan frontier, but it may have been Herzegovina. It was around there somewhere and down again to Delhi, to see the ancient architectural wonders there, and in old Delhi, and not describe them, and also to see the scene of the illustrious assault in the mutiny days, when the British carried Delhi by storm, one of the marvels of history for impudent daring and immortal valor. We had a refreshing rest there in Delhi, in a great old mansion which possessed historical interest. It was built by a rich Englishman who had become orientalized, so much so that he had a zenana. But he was a broad-minded man, and remained so. To please his harem he built a mosque. To please himself he built an English church. That kind of a man will arrive somewhere. In the mutiny days the mansion was the British general's headquarters. It stands in a great garden, oriental fashion, and about it are many noble trees. The trees harbor monkeys, and they are monkeys of a watchful and enterprising sort, and not much troubled with fear. 
They invade the house whenever they get a chance, and carry off everything they don't want. One morning the master of the house was in his bath, and the window was open. Near it stood a pot of yellow paint and a brush. Some monkeys appeared in the window. To scare them away, the gentleman threw his sponge at them. They did not scare at all. They jumped into the room and threw yellow paint all over him from the brush, and drove him out. Then they painted the walls and the floor and the tank and the windows and the furniture yellow, and were in the dressing-room painting that when help arrived and routed them. Two of these creatures came into my room in the early morning, through a window whose shutters I had left open, and when I woke one of them was before the glass brushing his hair, and the other one had my notebook, and was reading a page of humorous notes and crying. I did not mind the one with the hairbrush, but the conduct of the other one hurt me. It hurts me yet. I threw something at him, and that was wrong, for my host had told me that the monkeys were best left alone. They threw everything at me that they could lift, and then went into the bathroom to get some more things, and I shut the door on them. At Jaipur, in Rajputana, we made a considerable stay. We were not in the native city, but several miles from it, in the small European official suburb. There were but few Europeans, only fourteen, but they were all kind and hospitable, and it amounted to being at home. In Jaipur we found again what we had found all about India, that while the Indian servant is in his way a very real treasure, he will sometimes bear watching, and the Englishman watches him. If he sends him on an errand, he wants more than the man's word for it that he did the errand. When fruit and vegetables were sent to us, a chit came with them, a receipt for us to sign, otherwise the things might not arrive. If a gentleman sent up his carriage, the chit stated, from such and such an hour to such and such an hour, which made it unhandy for the coachman and his two or three subordinates to put us off with a part of the allotted time and devote the rest of it to a lark of their own. We were pleasantly situated in a small, two-storied inn, in an empty large compound which was surrounded by a mud-wall as high as a man's head. The inn was kept by nine Hindu brothers, its owners. They lived, with their families, in a one-storied building within the compound, but off to one side, and there was always a long pile of their little comely brown children loosely stacked in its veranda, and a detachment of the parents wedged among them, smoking the hookah or the howdah, or whatever they call it. By the veranda stood a palm, and a monkey lived in it, and led a lonesome life, and always looked sad and weary, and the crows bothered him a good deal. The inn-cow poked about the compound, and emphasized the secluded and country air of the place, and there was a dog of no particular breed, who was always present in the compound, and always asleep, always stretched out, baking in the sun, and adding to the deep tranquillity and reposefulness of the place, when the crows were away on business. White draperied servants were coming and going all the time, but they seemed only spirits, for their feet were bare and made no sound. Down the lane apiece lived an elephant in the shade of a noble tree, and rocked and rocked, and reached about with his trunk, begging of his brown mistress, or fumbling the children playing at his feet. And there were camels about, but they go on velvet feet, and were proper to the silence and serenity of the surroundings. The Satan mentioned at the head of this chapter was not our Satan, but the other one. Our Satan was lost to us, 
in these later days he had passed out of our life lamented by me and sincerely i was missing him i am missing him yet after all these months he was an astonishing creature to fly around and do things he didn't always do them quite right but he did them and did them suddenly there was no time wasted you would say pack the trunks and bags satan where good very good then there would be a brief sound of thrashing and slashing and humming and buzzing and a spectacle as of a whirlwind spinning gowns and jackets and coats and boots and things through the air and then with a bow and touch all righty master it was wonderful it made one dizzy he crumpled dresses a good deal and he had no particular plan about the work at first except to put each article into the trunk it didn't belong in but he soon reformed in this matter not entirely for to the last he would cram into the satchel sacred to literature any odds and ends of rubbish that he couldn't find a handy place for elsewhere when threatened with death for this it did not trouble him he only looked pleasant saluted with soldierly grace said where good and did it again next day he was always busy kept the rooms tidied up the boots polished the clothes brushed the wash-basin full of clean water my dress-clothes laid out and ready for the lecture-hall an hour ahead of time and he dressed me from head to heel in spite of my determination to do it myself according to my lifelong custom he was a born boss and loved to command and to jaw and dispute with inferiors and harry them and bully-rag them he was fine at the railway station yes he was at his finest there he would shoulder and plunge and paw his violent way through the packed multitude of natives with nineteen coolies at his tail each bearing a trifle of luggage one a trunk another a parasol another a shawl another a fan and so on one article to each and the longer the procession the better he was suited and he was sure to make for some engaged sleeper and begin to hurl the owner's things out of it swearing that it was ours and that there had been a mistake arrived at our own sleeper he would undo the bedding bundles and make the beds and put everything to rights and shipshape in two minutes then put his head out at a window and have a restful good time abusing his gang of coolies and disputing their bill until we arrived and made him pay them and stop his noise speaking of noise he certainly was the noisiest little devil in india and that is saying much very much indeed i loved him for his noise but the family detested him for it they could not abide it they could not get reconciled to it it humiliated them as a rule when we got within six hundred yards of one of those big railway stations a mighty racket of screaming and shrieking and shouting and storming would break upon us and i would be happy to myself and the family would say with shame there that's satan why do you keep him and sure enough there in the whirling midst of fifteen hundred wondering people we would find that little scrap of a creature gesticulating like a spider with the colic his black eyes snapping his fez tassel dancing his jaws pouring out floods of billingsgate upon his gang of beseeching and astonished coolies i loved him i couldn't help it but the family why they could hardly speak of him with patience to this day i regret his loss and wish i had him back but they <laughs> it is different with them 
he was a native and came from surat twenty degrees of latitude lay between his birthplace and manuel's and fifteen hundred between their ways and characters and dispositions i only liked manuel but i loved satan this latter's real name was intensely indian i could not quite get the hang of it but it sounded like bundur rao ram chundur clam chowder it was too long for handy use anyway so i reduced it when he had been with us two or three weeks he began to make mistakes which i had difficulty in patching up for him approaching benares one day he got out of the train to see if he could get up a misunderstanding with somebody for it had been a weary long journey and he wanted to freshen up he found what he was after but kept up his powwow a shade too long and got left so there we were in a strange city and no chambermaid it was awkward for us and we told him he must not do so any more he saluted and said in his dear pleasant way where good then at lucknow he got drunk i said it was a fever and got the family's compassion and solicitude aroused so they gave him a teaspoonful of liquid quinine and it set his vitals on fire he made several grimaces which gave me a better idea of the lisbon earthquake than any i have ever got of it from paintings and descriptions his drunk was still portentously solid next morning but i could have pulled him through with the family if he would only have taken another spoonful of that remedy but no although he was stupefied his memory still had flickerings of life so he smiled a divinely dull smile and said fumblingly saluting scuse me mam saheb scuse me missy saheb satan not prefer it please then some instinct revealed to them that he was drunk they gave him prompt notice that next time this happened he must go he got out a maudlin and most gentle where good and saluted indefinitely only one short week later he fell again and oh sorrow not in a hotel this time but in an english gentleman's private house and in agra of all places so he had to go when i told him he said patiently where good and made his parting salute and went out from us to return no more forever dear me i would rather have lost a hundred angels than that one poor lovely devil what style he used to put on in a swell hotel or in a private house snow-white muslin from his chin to his bare feet a crimson sash embroidered with gold thread around his waist and on his head a great sea-green turban like to the turban of the grand turk he was not a liar but he will become one if he keeps on he told me once that he used to crack coconuts with his teeth when he was a boy and when i asked how he got them into his mouth he said he was upward of six feet high at that time and had an unusual mouth and when i followed him up and asked him what had become of that other foot he said a house fell on him and he was never able to get his stature back again swervings like these from the strict line of fact often beguile a truthful man on and on until he eventually becomes a liar his successor was a mohammedan sahadat mohammed khan very dark very tall very grave he went always in flowing masses of white from the top of his big turban down to his bare feet his voice was low he glided about in a noiseless way and looked like a ghost 
he was competent and satisfactory but where he was it seemed always sunday it was not so in satan's time jaipur is intensely indian but it has two or three features which indicate the presence of european science and european interest in the wheel of the common public such as the liberal water supply furnished by great works built at the state's expense good sanitation resulting in a degree of healthfulness unusually high for india a noble pleasure garden with privileged days for women schools for the instruction of native youth in advanced art both ornamental and utilitarian and a new and beautiful palace stocked with a museum of extraordinary interest and value without the maharaja's sympathy and purse these beneficences could not have been created but he is a man of wide views and large generosities and all such matters find hospitality with him we drove often to the city from the hotel kaiserihind a journey which was always full of interest both night and day for that country road was never quiet never empty but was always india in motion always a streaming flood of brown people clothed in smoochings from the rainbow a tossing and moiling flood happy noisy a charming and satisfying confusion of strange human and strange animal life and equally strange and outlandish vehicles and the city itself is a curiosity any indian city is that but this one is not like any other that we saw it is shut up in a lofty turreted wall the main body of it is divided into six parts by perfectly straight streets that are more than a hundred feet wide the blocks of houses exhibit a long frontage of the most taking architectural quaintnesses the straight lines being broken everywhere by pretty little balconies pillared and highly ornamented and other cunning and cosy and inviting perches and projections and many of the fronts are curiously pictured by the brush and the whole of them have the soft rich tint of strawberry ice-cream one cannot look down the far stretch of the chief street and persuade himself that these are real houses and that it is all out of doors the impression that it is an unreality a picture a scene in a theatre is the only one that will take hold then there came a great day when this illusion was more pronounced than ever a rich hindu had been spending a fortune upon the manufacture of a crowd of idols and accompanying paraphernalia whose purpose was to illustrate scenes in the life of his especial god or saint and this fine show was to be brought through the town in processional state at ten in the morning as we passed through the great public pleasure garden on our way to the city we found it crowded with natives that was one sight then there was another in the midst of the spacious lawn stands the palace which contains the museum a beautiful construction of stone which shows arched colonnades one above another and receding terrace fashion toward the sky every one of these terraces all the way to the top one was packed and jammed with natives one must try to imagine those solid masses of splendid color one above another up and up against the blue sky and the indian sun turning them all to beds of fire and flame later when we reached the city and glanced down the chief avenue smouldering in its crushed strawberry tint those splendid effects were repeated 
for every balcony and every fanciful bird-cage of a snuggery countersunk in the house-fronts and all the long lines of roofs were crowded with people and each crowd was an explosion of brilliant color then the wide street itself away down and down and down into the distance was alive with gorgeously clothed people not still but moving swaying drifting eddying a delirious display of all colors and all shades of color delicate lovely pale soft strong stunning vivid brilliant a sort of storm of sweet pea blossoms passing on the wings of a hurricane and presently through this storm of color came swaying and swinging the majestic elephants clothed in their sunday best of gaudinesses and the long procession of fanciful trucks freighted with their groups of curious and costly images and then the long rear-guard of stately camels with their picturesque riders for color and picturesqueness and novelty and outlandishness and sustained interest and fascination it was the most satisfying show i had ever seen and i suppose i shall not have the privilege of looking upon its like again End of chapter 60